Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. Our first reading this morning comes to us from the book of Esther, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and did obeisance to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or do obeisance. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? When they spoke to him day after day and Mordecai would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would avail, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or do obeisance to him, Haman was infuriated. But he thought it beneath him to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So having been told who Mordecai's people were, Haman plotted to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading comes again from the book of Esther, chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and gave him a message from Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone, may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During the summer, we are doing a sermon series called Sans Peril, Without Equal. When someone or something is said to be sans peril, it means that they are literally the best in the world or their class above all the rest. We've come down to our last two sermons in this particular sermon series. And this was the sermon series I was planning on doing next summer, but of course, because of COVID, we had to stay here and I was very happy to do it for you. So I hope you've enjoyed learning about all these various individuals who are the best at what they do. Each week we're looking at two people who are the best in their particular field, and we're not only examining their success, but we're looking at the qualities and characteristics that allowed them to rise to the top. 
And then we're looking at those qualities and characteristics through a biblical lens, and we're asking the question, how does God want us to use those qualities and characteristics to further our walk with God and to help build God's kingdom here on earth? Last week, we talked about two of the greatest artists in the history of the world. This week, we're talking about two of the greatest writers of literature in the 20th century. We're going to be talking about George Orwell and Toni Morrison. We're going to begin with Toni Morrison, who actually was not born with that name. She was born Chloe Ardelia Wolford, and she was born in Lorraine, Ohio on February 18th, 1931. She was born in Ohio because her father had actually moved there from Atlanta, Georgia. He was trying to take advantage of all the industrialization that was happening in the North, and he wanted to get away from the violent racism that he'd experienced growing up in the South. Chloe's parents wanted her to have a deep sense of her heritage, of where she came from. And so every evening they would regale her with African folk tales, ghost stories, and songs. Chloe was an extraordinarily bright young woman. She was a voracious reader. Her favorite authors were Jane Austen and Leo Tolstoy. And she was a girl who definitely had her own independent streak. So her parents attended an African Methodist Episcopal church, but at the age of 12, she decided that she wanted to convert to Catholicism. And when she converted, she took on the baptismal name Anthony after Anthony of Padua, which is where she garnered the nickname Tony. So Tony, she would always go down her own path, always do her own things, and this served her very well throughout her lifetime. In 1949, she enrolled at Howard University, which was the center of black intellectualism in America. Upon enrolling there, she moved to Washington, D.C., and that is the first time that she ever experienced segregation. And that completely changed her understanding of the nature of black identity in America, and it would shape a lot of her understanding of her writing from that point forward. After graduating with a degree in English, she went on to get her Master of Arts from Cornell University, and she wrote her thesis there on Virginia Woolf and William Faulkner's treatment of the alienated. And this would be a theme that would follow her throughout all of her writing. Now this master's degree from Cornell, it allowed her to get a teaching position at Howard, and it was there that she ended up meeting her future husband, Harold Morrison. Harold Morrison was a Jamaican architect. They were married in 1958, and that is where she eventually got the name Tony Morrison. After a number of years of being together with him, she decided that the marriage wasn't working, and so they ended up getting divorced in 1964. And at that point in time, she was pregnant with her second son, and the prospect of having to raise both her boys on her own fueled her desire to go out and to find new employment. And so she went out and she actually found a position as a textbook editor with Random House in Syracuse, New York. She got that position in 1965, moved out to Syracuse, and she was so good at her job, so good at what she had to do, is that she was noticed by the editors back in New York. And she was hired in 1967 as the first black female senior editor of the fiction department. 
And thanks to her time there, she was single-handedly responsible for taking black authors and bringing them into the public consciousness of American society. She took black authors and she really pushed them out there. Now, as a result of spending all this time editing other people's fiction, she was also able to refine her own fiction writing. And this is when she started taking stories that she had written and converting them over. So she had written a story about a young black girl who longed to have blue eyes. And she converted this story into her first novel called The Bluest Eye. Now, she had to wake up at 4 a.m. every morning to work on this manuscript so that she could maintain her job at Random House and raise her two boys. Now, once The Bluest Eye was published, it was largely ignored by white audiences, but it was hailed by black intellectuals as a monumental work. It would take her another two books. It wasn't until her third book, called The Song of Solomon, which was produced and published in 1977, that she would acclaim a nationwide audience. So Song of Solomon, it follows a black man from birth all the way through adulthood as he learns about his heritage through the magic of the black experience. This book was extraordinarily popular, so popular that it was actually picked up by the Book of the Month Club as one of its official selections. Now, this was a big deal because prior to that point in time, in the 50-year history of the Book of the Month Club, they had only chosen one other black author, and that was Richard Wright's native son. So this was a big deal that she had been chosen for this. She was really the only the second person to get this, and so as a result, her book became very widely read, and she ended up winning a National Book Critics Circle Award for this book. Now, what made Toni Morrison's writing so absolutely amazing and compelling was her ability to really draw the reader in. Her construction of phrases really allowed you to feel the emotions of the characters. It's as if you were walking in their skin. You could see the world through their eyes. And this is really important. Something that many people don't realize is that her books were the first books to really be widely read by a white audience. And this was unique because prior to that, most of the books that white people were reading at that point in time were about civil rights. And so it was through her books that she allowed a white audience to truly get an understanding of the black experience and how utterly challenging it can be to live a black life in America. In 1987, she ended up publishing her book, which was a landmark, it was known as Beloved. Beloved was based on the true story of an enslaved woman named Margaret Garner. So the true story of Margaret Garner is that she ran away from her plantation home and she took her two-year-old daughter with her and she was running to try to get towards the north. Unfortunately, she was being pursued by slave hunters. They ended up cornering her. She took the life of her two-year-old daughter and was trying to take her own life but was prevented from doing so and was captured. Now, Beloved imagines that the ghost of her two-year-old daughter comes back and haunts her and the family with whom she lived. Now, this is very dark subject matter, but it was a sensation. People loved this book. It was at the top of the bestsellers list for 25 straight weeks and earned Toni Morrison a Pulitzer Prize.
This book not only was big here in America, it was actually big internationally. It sent ripples throughout the world. It was translated into a bunch of different languages, and it really gave people a sense of what it was like to be black in America in a way that nothing else had. And so as a result of Beloved and the trilogy that she wrote around this, she ended up receiving the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1993. Now this was a huge deal. She was the first black woman of any nationality to receive a Nobel Prize. And her citation with that Nobel Prize read that her novels characterized by visionary force and poetic import gives life to an essential aspect of the American reality. So essentially what she did was she helped people to understand what the American reality was. And so it was through literature that Toni Morrison helped people to understand how slavery and racism is perpetuated in America and how this legacy really follows all generations of black people to this day. Now what's interesting is that we come to George Orwell and he's trying to achieve a similar feat with his writing, but he's focused on a very different topic. He is focused on the fallacies of fascism and communism. So like Toni Morrison, George Orwell, he was born with a very different name. His name was Eric Arthur Blair. He was born on June 25th, 1903 in British India. Now his father worked for the Opium Department in the Indian Civil Service. And I find this to be amazing because that would be like here in the United States if we had a department in the federal government dedicated to the sale of heroin and cocaine because you gotta collect all that tax revenue, right? So this is where his father worked, but at one year old, his mother decided to take him and his sisters back to England to live on her estate in Oxfordshire, which sounds very lavish, but it really wasn't. They had the home, but they had very little money. In fact, so little money that she couldn't even afford the public school fees to send him to public school. Now, thankfully, Eric was a brilliant student, and he earned a scholarship to one of the fancy boarding schools in England. But in going there, he was the only student in his school who didn't come from a wealthy family. And so he very much felt like a fish out of water. And he was an observer to wealth, and this is something that would really enter into a lot of his writing throughout his life. He did very well in school, and he scored well on his exams, so he ended up going to college. And it was there that he ended up studying under Aldous Huxley. Now, Aldous Huxley is the famous science fiction writer. He wrote the dystopian novel Brave New World. But even though he was there studying under this amazing writer, he decided that college wasn't for him. And so he ends up leaving and he follows in his father's footsteps and he heads over to British India again. And it is there that he ends up working for the Imperial Police. He gets set up there to end up working as an assistant district superintendent. And you can see in this picture here that he was among several different people in this area. And he loved this job initially. But what he discovered was that his race as an Englishman, it set him apart from the people who he was there to serve. And this was really hard for him because based on the caste system in India, he was somebody who garnered respect because of the color of his skin. But what that meant was he was not allowed to associate with people from lower castes. And he really enjoyed talking to people from lower castes, but he was chastised all the time for doing this. And eventually he comes to the decision that he can no longer work for the Imperial Police. He's ashamed of what he's doing. And so in 1928, 
He heads back to England and he wants to pursue his dream of becoming a writer. But before he decides to write, he says, you know, I want to spend some time learning what it's like to live among the poor and the outcast. So he puts on some ragged clothes and he ends up heading to the east end of London. This is where you would find the laborers and the beggars. And it is there that he starts living among them. He actually goes out into the Kentish hops fields, which is essentially what would happen is you would have your vagrants who lived in the slums and they would go out and they would come and try to harvest all of the hops for the year. And he did that with them. He also would go over to France and he lived in the Parisian slums. He worked as a dishwasher in French hotels and restaurants. And this really gave him a sense of what it was like to live as somebody who was poor. And this influenced his writing. So from 1933 to 1936, he wrote four different novels. And most of them focused on the plight of the poor and really was an indictment in a huge way of the lavishness and the ignorance of the bourgeoisie. Unfortunately for him, though, his novels didn't sell very well. It was during this time that he ends up adopting the pseudonym of George Orwell that would be applied to his writing from that point forward. Unfortunately for him, his first four novels did not sell very well, but he did catch the attention of several newspapers and magazines who decided to hire him as a journalist to write pieces for their publications. In 1937, George Orwell was sent to Spain to report on the Spanish Civil War. After he finished his reporting, he decided that he was going to stay behind in order to fight with the Republican militia. As he did his reporting, he came to discover that the communists who were trying to take over there were really going to do a number on the Spanish people, and he felt that he needed to fight on their behalf. So because of his time working with the Indian Imperial Police, he very much worked his way up very quickly through the ranks to become a second lieutenant. In one of those battles, he ends up getting shot in the throat by a sniper bullet. Now, he ends up living through this, but his speech was permanently affected. After he was recovered, he returned to the front lines, and once the communists found out that he had survived, they hunted him down in Barcelona. And their tactics were so vicious that Orwell ended up having to flee for his life, and it left him with a lifelong dread of communism. It also inspired him to write the book Animal Farm. Now, I'm sure many of you have read Animal Farm before, but if you haven't, it's a political fable that talks about the Russian Revolution and how Joseph Stalin undermined that revolution. So in this story, you have a bunch of barnyard animals that end up overthrowing and casting out their human oppressors and overlords. So they come together, they form this egalitarian community, and then the pigs come together and they form a dictatorship. And their dictatorship ends up creating even worse circumstances for the barnyard animals than what they'd experienced under their human oppressors. And there's this famous line from the book that the pigs say that really resonates even to this day, where they say, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. This book was something that at the time was very hard for him to get published 
because they were in the middle of World War II. It was a bold statement against Stalin and communism. But the fact is, is that the English were fighting alongside the Russians to defeat the Germans. And truthfully, most people at that time did not understand how brutal Stalin's regime was for the Russian people. But 1945, the war ends, Animal Farm gets published, and instantly it becomes this huge success. And overnight, George Orwell becomes famous. Now, as a result of his book, many people came to understand how communism has the potential to turn into totalitarianism. But the success of something like Animal Farm would pale in comparison to Orwell's seminal work, 1984. 1984 takes place in a dystopian future where the public is constantly being monitored by the government, who is referred to as Big Brother. So in this world, if you live in an apartment or in a house, you have what's known as a telescreen. And on the telescreen, there is a camera that watches your every move. And the telescreen is also pumping out propaganda 24-7. The protagonist in this story is a man named Winston Smith. And Winston Smith works for the ironically named Ministry of Truth. His job is to change the news, to alter it. So he will go through newspapers, magazines, any kind of media, textbooks, to make sure that whatever is being written shows that the government was accurate and correct because the government could never be wrong. The plot arc of the story is that Winston falls in love and he ends up joining a resistance movement to take down Big Brother. If you've never read 1984 before, you are in for a treat. It is a remarkably well-written book, and the plot is just moving forward at such a great pace. It truly is just so well thought through, and part of the reason why is because he draws on that pain that he felt when he lived in poverty, and also the pain that he experienced when he was in war. And like Toni Morrison, the writing is so exquisite because you can really get into the characters. You feel like you are in their shoes. You can see the world through their eyes. And his book really does help you to pose a question, which is, if you were placed in a position where you were up against an oppressive totalitarian regime, a system of oppression that likely you could not overcome. Would you fight against that knowing that there were slim chances of you surviving and the chances were very high that you would be caught, tortured, and executed? Now, this is exactly the question that is being asked in the book of Esther. So in this book, what we have is we have this character, a young woman who is named Esther. She's a Jewish woman and she ends up becoming queen to King Ahasuerus. Now, the king does not know that she's Jewish, and this is an important element of this plot. Now, King Ahasuerus, early on in the story of Esther, he ends up promoting a man named Haman to the second-in-command. He's basically the king's right-hand man. Now, Haman, he is a person who has a big ego, and anybody beneath his station, once he gets promoted, he wants them to bow down to him. And this causes him to come across Mordecai, who is Esther's uncle. And Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. And the reason why is he says, look, it's nothing against you personally, but 
my faith, my Jewish faith, requires that I only bow down to God in heaven. And this absolutely infuriates Haman. And in what can only be classified as a massive overreaction, he ends up deciding that he's not only going to kill Mordecai, but all of the Jewish people. And this is the first instance that we find in the Bible of Holocaust or of the idea that genocide needed to be committed against the Jewish people. So Mordecai, he becomes aware of this plot and he ends up writing to Esther as we read this morning saying, look, this situation going on and you are in this privileged position where you are right next to the king. We need your help. Otherwise, we may not be able to survive. But Esther, she doesn't really want to do this because she's in a tough situation. At that time, if you go back in history, kings would often not allow people to simply come and see them whenever they wanted to. And the reason why is because they were scared of being assassinated. And so anybody who would come in without being welcomed by the king or being asked by the king would often just be killed. That was the law at that time. And so she can't just walk in and ask him about this. She's risking her life to do so. But Mordecai says, look, you need to do this because if you don't, we may get help from other quarters and don't think that you're just going to survive because you're the queen. And so he has this famous line at the very end where he says, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. So what Orwell's 1984, or Morrison's Beloved, like those novels, what the book of Esther does is that it pits this powerless character against a system of oppression that seems almost insurmountable. The fact is, is that it seems like they have very little chance of survival, but she's going to go up against it and see what she can do to win. And what these stories do for us is actually something quite remarkable because they help us understand what it means to be part of the oppressed class, which can be hard for many people to understand. So if you're part of a system, if you live in a system, so we live in the system of America, other people live in different systems around the world, and you benefit from that system, it can be hard to understand how other people have been negatively affected by it, particularly if you haven't been negatively affected by it, or you don't know anyone who has. And so these stories give us a window into their world of what it's like to be burdened under that weight. So when you read these stories, they really open up for us the sense of the depth and breadth of an experience that would otherwise be foreign to us. So unless you're Jewish, it can be very hard to understand and to conceptualize what it would be like to live as a Jewish person who for generations have had to worry about people trying to exterminate their people, having to worry about genocide. Unless you are black in America, it's very hard to understand what it's like to live with the vestiges of racism and slavery following you wherever you go in modern America. Unless you live in a fascist state, it can be very hard to conceptualize what it would be like to live in a place where you are not allowed to think and act freely and how that can drain you of hope. And so what these stories do for us is they help those of us who can't imagine these circumstances find them to be tangible for us, like we can finally see them in a tangible way. And once you get into the lives of people who live 
other than you, people who are part of the oppressed class, then you are forced into a position of asking a question, which is, how do I, in just living my life, how am I impacting these people who are part of the oppressed class? Now, this is a really hard thing for us to ask because, for instance, if you're talking about somebody who lives in a fascist country, well, we can't do anything about that. We live in America, there's nothing we can do. But you do live side by side with people who are Jewish, and you do live side by side with people who are African American. And so you can do something about that. And then that forces you to make a decision, which is, are you going to do something to help the lives of people who have been negatively impacted by these systems, or are you going to continue to live your life unbothered and undeterred, going forward as you always have, and not really thinking about how your action or inaction impacts the lives of others? Now, this is exactly the situation that Esther is faced with. So here she is, she's in this position of privilege where she's right next to the king and she gets it there and say, well, this is really not my problem or I don't really have anything to do with this. But she has this opportunity to step out and to help her people by trying to get to the king and telling him about what's going on. Similarly, we find ourselves in a position right now where we are being asked to do something about the racism that exists in this country. And we are part of the privileged class, just like Esther is. We have this opportunity to step up and to say something and to stop it. Now, I would say that every single person who's watching this, I would guarantee you, or at least I hope so, that most of you here would say that yes, racism is wrong, it shouldn't exist. But it's a whole different thing when you're being asked to actually go out and talk about it, to say how it's wrong, to stand up and to speak out. That's much harder. That takes courage. And I think many of us, when faced with that situation, we tend to shrink away from our responsibility and say, well, what could I really do about it? And the fact is, is that you can do a lot. Most of the members of this church are part of the privileged class. So we are white, middle and upper middle class Americans. And so we actually truly can make a difference. We are like Esther in the sense that we are part of the privileged class and we can make a difference. So let me give you an example of what I mean by that. For the first time in 50 years, organizations like white nationalists, neo-Nazis and the KKK have been swelling with members. Now under normal circumstances, when we see something like that, we step back and we say, well that's really unfortunate that that's happening. And we don't really do anything about it. We just sit there and say, well, these are people who are misguided and that's really sad. But as these people gain members, what that means is they're gonna start coming after minorities. They're gonna start trying to hurt them more. And it's not really the responsibility of minorities to be able to protect themselves. We are the ones who have to protect them. They are in a position where they are being oppressed. And we, as a group of people, can stand up and say, this is wrong. And I really believe that right now, just like Esther was being called, we are being called for such a time as this to stand up, to speak out, and to really try to undermine racism and undermine those racist systems of injustice. Now, this is not the only thing that we are called to do as Christians, but it's important that we do this in this time and place. And so what this means is, the first step in this process is that we have to get educated. 
We have to learn what it's like to be part of the oppressed class. So what that means is you need to start reading. You need to read the book of Esther. You need to read about what it's like to live as a Jewish person and how people have been coming after you and your people for generations to exterminate you, to commit genocide on your people. It's important to read Morrison's Beloved or to read Song of Solomon so that you understand what is it like to live a black life here in America. It's important to read something like 1984 so that you come to understand what it means to live in a fascist regime. And once you understand how these people are living, once you can really get inside of it, that's when you can start to make a difference. That's when we can start to really work together to dismantle and take apart the system that has really hurt people for so long and that we have been a part of creating, often unknowingly, simply because we benefited from it so much. And so, to me, this is really what God's kingdom is all about. We have an opportunity to do something so incredible because God's kingdom is exactly this idea of helping the oppressed. Remember, God's kingdom was this idea that the Jewish people were oppressed and Jesus was going to go help them and make it so that they were not that way any longer. And I believe that that's exactly what we are called to do today here in America, that we are called to help the people who are oppressed, to help the people who are dealing with racism. That is the very essence of what it means when we say, choose love, be the light, change the world. Is it going to be hard? Yes. Is it going to take courage? Yes. But if we are willing to stand together, if we're willing to get educated, then we will feel compelled to want to go out and to make a difference in the lives of those who have been disenfranchised by the system that we have created. And we can make a big difference and do what Jesus asked us to do by creating God's kingdom here on earth. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.